Our sermon today is taken from Exodus chapter 20, verse 1 to 21. This is the word of God. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath uh, to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses, Moses drew near to, to the thick darkness where God was. That is the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Yos. Um, just one more quick announcement before we pray and we begin the preaching of God's word. Um, we do need more volunteers for the Mercy Ministry event on the 14th of December. So if you're interested to come to that, we would love to help. Uh, please do contact us, particularly contact Willie, who is in the back somewhere. Can Willie just raise your hand? Willie, or he's over there. Raise your hand, or maybe stand up, Willie. That's the man to contact for Mercy Ministry for December 14th. We need more volunteers. Please do come and join us, and we'll be having a good time there. All right, let me pray for the preaching of God's word. Father, we thank you so much for your grace that is manifested in the giving of the law. Father, we don't normally associate the law with your grace, but Father, we know that these laws are actually good for us, that they were given to us, not so that we might gain your favor, but because the people of God has gained your favor, Father. Help us see these laws as not just a way of life, but a gracious gift that comes from you so that we may order our lives well as we live in the new family that is the family in Christ. So, Father, help me be clear. Help us see how this passage points to Christ 
Help us apply these passages to our lives by your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, we're continuing our series today in the book of Exodus, and right now we're in the middle of the Ten Commandments. Remember last week we covered the first four commandments, and then this week we're covering the next six commandments, the commandments that have to deal with how we love our neighbor. And so, yes, these commandments are thick in theology. There's just a lot of things that we got to cover here, right? There are six commandments to kind of cover here. It's very hard to make this sermon into one sermon and not six different sermons that I'll be here for you for the rest of the day, right? Um, but rather, we need to see the, ser- the sermon as one whole because these laws are really one unity. And not only that, we got to see that these laws are incredibly immediately relevant, that even though there's deeply theological material here, that some of today's sermon might seem really deep, really thick, uh, with lots of contents in it. This is some uh, really concrete ethical principles that we're going to study here today. It has to do with how to live our lives well. How do we treat our neighbors well? How do we love our neighbor? How do we conduct ourselves before the God that we love? And thus, in light of that, how we can therefore be good to one another. So I think even though the sermon will be thick in theological concepts, it will also be rich in application as well, all right? Now that that's being said, there are three points that I want to point out from today's sermon. We're going to cover the next six commandments here from the Ten Commandments, Commandments 5 to 10. First point, this is a law for a new family. Second point, what the law requires. And third point, we're going to cover the three uses of the law. And that's the epilogue there, okay? So first, this is a law for a new family. Second, what the law requires. And third, this, what are the three uses of the law? All right, first, this is a law for a new family. It was important for us, even though we're covering just the second half of the commandments, commandments 5 to 10, that we read the whole context once again, right? We had to read the whole passage again, all of, basically almost all of chapter 20 again, so that we can understand the context into which these commandments are actually given to us, right? Because a lot of us, here's how I think we, we take the Ten Commandments, we think that there are pithy sayings that can be taken in isolation, that we can just kind of put on our bathroom wall or something like that to remind us. Uh, in fact, I remember uh, a member actually told me that in their household, they just put the fifth commandment there, honor your parents, that's it. That's all you need to know, children. That's all you need to know, just honor your parents, right? So that we can take these commandments in isolation and they're just nice pithy sayings for us to improve our lives with, right? But if you notice, I hope you've seen as we've covered the the whole book of Exodus so far, right, that these commandments are given in a very particular context. The people of Israel had just been delivered out of slavery in Egypt. God is now in the mountain. They're supposed to worship God, and now God is giving them these commandments, not so that they may gain his righteousness, but so that they may live in his righteousness, right? Look at verse 1 and 2 again. Look at the immediate context of the commandments, the, the prelude here. What does God say? God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Notice what's happening here. God did not give these commandments before they were saved by God. These commandments were not given so that you can, as if they are like steps of a ladder, get to God so that you can prove that you're righteous before him so that you may gain his love. That's the opposite of why these commandments were given. God is saying to them, look, I've rescued you. 
I am yours. I've promised you that I am yours. Now live this way because you are already mine. These commandments, in other words, are given after the people of God had been completely redeemed. And so Tazar gave an apt analogy last week that these commandments are kind of like marriage vows. This is a covenant of marriage that God has with his people. And that explains beautifully the first four commandments. If you're married to someone, you're going to be absolutely faithful to your spouse. So have no other gods before me, right? If you're married to someone, you're not going to mistake your spouse for something else, right? You're not going to create images of God as if God is like anything else in the world, right? If you're married to someone, you're going to be sure to honor their name. Don't use the name of God in vain. If you're going to be married to someone, you're going to spend special days with that person, right? And so the first four commandments are dealt beautifully, and they're, they're in the context of this covenant marriage between the people of Israel and God. The first four commandments, therefore, deal directly with the relationship between God and his people. There's a vertical dimension in the first four commandments. But the next set of commandments, the six commandments that come after the first four, have to do not with the vertical relationship per se, but all this involves that, as we're going to see, it has to do with a, with a horizontal relationship. How do we now, as God's people, relate with one another, with other human beings? And so even though the marriage analogy was very apt, I think another analogy that helps capture the fuller sense of these commandments would be that this is an adoption narrative. This is a new law for a new family, that God has taken up these Israelites for himself, and they're going to be his new family now. And just think about this, right? What happens when someone, perhaps from a rougher background, a rougher family, or maybe no family at all, gets adopted into a well-ordered family, things would have to be different in that new family, wouldn't it? A beautiful analogy of this, one of my favorite movies that I saw on the way back here from my work conference in San Diego was Toy Story 4. I love that movie, my goodness. I thought that Toy Story 3 was great. I never thought that they should make a fourth one, and I was wrong. But Toy Story 4 was great. I, I recommend that you all see it. And I hope you remember, in Toy Story 4, there's a particular character in there named Forky. Remember Forky? You all remember Forky, right? Uh, remember what happened here. Bonnie, the main kid in Toy Story 4, found a spork, you know, a spoon fork, which I think only exists in America because Americans are capitalists and pragmatists, so they want to make everything work. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. Um, so she found a spork in the garbage trash, right? And so she found it, and then she decided, this is going to be my new toy now. She found a bunch of twigs, put the twigs around the spork and some fake eyes on it, and it started to call this spork Forky. This is my new toy now. And you know how Toy Story goes. Uh, the toys come alive when the children treat them like toys, when the children treat them as if they have lives, right? So she carried Forky home, and of course Woody followed them home, and uh, all the new toys are excited that she has this new toy now, Forky. But of course Forky came from trash. So what happened during the night? What happened when Forky actually came alive? Forky was in bed with Bonnie, right? She's like, you know, cuddling with him, her new toy, prize, new possession, right? And then Forky says, I'm trash! And then she, he runs away jumps off the bed and says, trash, and then she jumps into the trash, and then he says, I'm home, right? And then Woody is like, what are you doing? Like, like, what are you doing? All you have to do is stay in bed. Every toy would die just to be in that bed, right? And then what did Forky do? Like, he doesn't recognize Woody, 
when Woody tries to you know, introduce Forky to all the other toys, Forky doesn't want to trust them, runs away from them, runs away from the bus, tries to go back to trash all the time, right? In other words, Forky couldn't fathom the fact that he's not, no longer trash, but a toy in Bonnie. Forky couldn't accept the fact that he had a new identity given to him by the grace of Bonnie. Right? Forky had a new family now. He shouldn't dwell around in the trash anymore. His, his friends are not the trash anymore. They're not the toys. This is your new family. Trust them. Love one another. Forky, in other words, is just like us. Right? I remember tapping Indita, my wife, in the plane. The gospel is all over this movie. And she's looking at me like I'm weird, you know. <laughs> And she's just trying to sleep or something, watching some other movie. Um, so, but I remember thinking and watching that movie, like, this is exactly what the gospel is like. This is what the commandments are given, right? Think about who the Israelites were, right? They were under slavery in a different family. Who was their father? A, a tyrant named Pharaoh, right? A toxic father. They had daddy issues, in other words, right? They were starved to death. Oftentimes their children were killed, right? And they were, they were living in all sorts of dysfunctional ways, mistrusting one another, murdering one another. And then now suddenly they are adopted into this new family with a holy God as their new father now. And their new father is saying, look, you're family now. You don't, you don't get to just uh, treat one another the same way that you used to do in Egypt, all right? Love one another. Honor your parents. Uh, don't kill, don't steal. You don't need to steal anymore because I'll provide for you. Uh, don't lie. Don't be afraid. You have nothing to hide anymore because I, I, I'm behind you. Why are you scared of? People accuse you, tell them the truth, right? That's the context that you have to see the Ten Commandments in. Oftentimes we don't read it that way. We read, it, read it them as, as killjoys, just commands, kind of randomly given so that we can improve our lives. Far be it. Just like Forky was told, trust your family now. Be good to them. Stay rested. You're a child. No longer trash. So now the Ten Commandments are given for us for our good. So first, this is a law for a new family. That's the first point. The second point, and friends, you got to buckle your seatbelts here because we actually have to cover what the commandments actually say. And this might see a little bit dense, but we do have to cover them. This is what uh, preaching is for. We're covering it verse by verse. So what does the law actually require, right? Uh, what kind of myths do we believe in these laws? Uh, what, what do they, what's the scope of them, right? And I wish I had all the time in the world to just cover one, every single one in detail, one by one. But I'm just going to cover three aspects of these six laws, okay? Three aspects of these six laws. So there's three subpoints under the second point. The scope of each law, the unity of the laws, and the heart of the law, okay? The scope, the unity, the heart. What does the law require? Scope, unity, heart, all right? So what's the scope of what each law requires, right? Verse 12, let's cover the fifth commandment now, and we'll go through the list one by one very briefly. Verse 12, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that your Lord your God is giving you. This is probably the most basic of all commandments, the one that we take for granted oftentimes, the one that's making every parent here very happy. Uh, honor your father and mother. Now, every single one of these laws, including this one, here's what we have to keep in mind, friends. We have to keep in mind all of the other laws in the book of Exodus, 
uh, what's going to be delineated in, in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, because those books don't just tell us and repeat these laws, they actually give us more particular laws that have to deal with specific cases, like, okay, you shouldn't steal. What if it's a donkey versus a house? You know, what if it's a wife and, and a servant? Like, what are the different cases of stealing? So in other words, each law actually covers a variety of different cases. So in verse 12, it says, honor your father and your mother. And if you were like me, when you're not a believer in eighth grade, I used to think, well, what if I don't have a parent? See, there's a loophole in this. Uh, if I don't have a parent, I can't violate this law, you know? Uh, it doesn't work that way. The scope of these commandments are way broader than we think. Honor your father and your mother here isn't just about the parental relationship of, of biological authority. No, honor your father and mother, according to the rest of the Bible and according to the way Christians have read it for thousands of years, also applies not just to parents, but to every authority that you find in your life. Your boss, uh, the judicial authorities over you, the political authorities over you. In other words, every nexus of human relationships where there's a subordinate and an authority, honor that authority. So not just your biological fathers and mothers, but your spiritual fathers and mothers, your priests, your prophets, your kings, your lawyers, your bosses, whatever it might be, continue to honor them. And as we see from the rest of the Bible as well, honor your father and your mother isn't just a one-way command from subordinates to authorities, but also refers to the parents and the authorities themselves. In other words, be the kind of authorities that is worthy of honor. It goes both ways. Be the kinds of authorities that are worthy of honor and be honoring of these authorities. So notice really from the get-go, even the most basic of all these commandments actually has a huge, huge scope in view. Same with 13, 14, 15, 16, these other verses here, for the rest of the commandments. Let's go to you shall not murder. You shall not murder like all the other commandments in the rest of the list is given in the form of a prohibition, right? You shall not. It's a negative commandment. And so you're thinking, finally, a commandment I have never broken. I have never murdered anyone, or at least I hope, right? I can't assume that maybe. But you shall not murder here isn't just in reference to the fact that you haven't murdered. The positive side of it is also implied. So not just the negative prohibition, but the positive is also implied. So what's the positive you shall not murder? You shall love life. You shall treat one another and love their lives. You should make sure that you're on constantly seeking the benefit and the well-being of others around you. Make sure that you preserve their lives and seek their well-being. And the Westminster Larger Catechism, 135, even says not just that you're supposed to treat one another and, 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 and love their lives, keep them healthy, preserve them, but also that you should treat your own life as well. That you should be healthy that you should have a sober use of meat. That's a literal quotation. Now, it doesn't mean that it's condemning meat, but it's saying don't be gluttonous, right? Yes, so, so eating too much is a violation, apparently, of you shall not murder because you're not taking care of your own life. Notice already the scope of this is already like, okay, I'm a bit trembling now because uh, I don't exactly eat well. I had, a, I had a bucket of like fried tenderloin or something last week. I don't know what you guys are eating, all right? You're already, I hope, here's what I'm trying to do with the scope, right? I'm trying to show you that these commandments are not easy to follow, all right? Let's, let's keep going. You shall not commit adultery, okay? 
It doesn't just mean you shouldn't cheat with somebody who's already married, because literally that's the first thing we want to think about to get ourselves off the hook of this one, right? It doesn't just mean if you're married, don't cheat on your spouse or don't cheat with somebody who's already married, right? It means the positive as well. It's not just a prohibition. The positive is you should love one another in such a way that you honor their purity. You will never objectify them and make them an object of your pleasure. You should never use them, but love them because they're, they're image bearers of God. And not only that, friends, you shall not commit adultery. It also means uh, clarifying and protecting your purity ensuring that you honor people for who they are and you honor yourself for who they are, that you have a high value of people's worth and bodies, right? Let me just uh, spend a another minute on this one because I think this is the commandment that's been most under attack in our day today. You shall not commit adultery, right? Uh, a lot of uh, people that I meet, and I used to think this way, right? We often think that Christians have a low view of sexuality and have a low view of the body. Right? People say, oh, Christians don't like the body. They don't like us to express ourselves, uh, you know, sexually or stuff like that. And Christians, uh, they have a low view of sex. They don't want us to express ourselves in that way at all. Like, Christians are prudish, puritanical. That's kind of the caricature. But actually, I want to argue just briefly here that Christians actually have a much higher view of the body than our secularist counterparts. Because here's what the secularist is saying. The secularist is saying, you could give your body away to someone, but don't give the rest of your life away to that person. Be protective of your time, be protective of your money, be protective of your commitments and independence, but your body, yeah, 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 you can share that. So, but the Christian is saying, by contrast to that, your body is part and parcel of who you are and cannot be divided away from your time, your being, your spirit, your soul, right? Your independence. No, no, no. Your body is so a part of who you are that you should never give your body away to someone unless you're ready to give your whole life to that person. So that the Christian is saying your body is so precious that it's just as precious because it's not separable from every part of who you are. So it's not the Christian who's cheapening the body, it's the secularist who's cheapening the body. Because the secularist is saying, yeah, your body can be given away, but be protective of everything else. But the Christian is saying, don't separate your body from everything else, because your body is part of who you are. So only give your body to the person that you're willing to give your life to. That's the Christian view of why sex should be within the bounds of marriage. Nothing prudish about that, but actually a, an elevated view. We want marriage to be the place where sex and sexual expression happens precisely because, not for the fact that we have a low view of sex in the body, but because we have such a high view as part of who we are, and so we should only share with the person that we share our whole lives with. All right? And there's a whole another sermon there, but let's move forward to verse 15. You shall not steal, all right? Very briefly in this one, doesn't just mean that you've never shoplifted, but it also means generosity, radical generosity. Not just with your finances, but with your time, with your resources, with your relationships, everything, right? A lot of us, uh, we could easily just write off a check to the church or to the orphanage that we love to give to or something, but then we'd be very protective of our time. I know because I'm one, probably one of those persons. Like, oh, I'll write a check, but uh, don't come to my house. 
right? I, I keep a safe space here. My home is my kingdom, right? Uh, in other words, we're very, very quick to just choose which currency is least inconvenient to us and give that away, but then we're not radically generous in all the other ways in our lives. But this commandment is trying to say, be so generous that nobody should ever have to steal, that nobody should ever have to steal. Be absolutely generous. Protect each other's property and share your property in such a way where everyone can partake in it. Verse 18, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. All right? Now, again, this isn't just about a law court where you have a false accusation against somebody. The positive is once again still implied as the scope of this. And what's the positive of not lying against your neighbor? Love the truth. Speak the truth. Live in the truth. Love the truth so much that, that you can't and you don't want to lie to your neighbor. And not only that, that you won't ruin the honor of your neighbor's name. If you take a look at the Westminster Confession of Faith and the larger shorter catechisms, this commandment specifically has to do with the fact that you have to think the best of your neighbors. You have to make sure that you want to protect them. You won't want to slander them. You don't want to gossip. You don't take delight in gossip. Such that when somebody wrongs you, you refuse to define them by that mistake. Have, you ever, have that ever happened to you? You know, Let's say you know, your name is John and Matt lied to you. Matt's a liar. Like, ah, a liar. You know? And then you grab Pastor Tazar. Like, Tazar, Matt lied to me. That liar. He needs to discipline. And then Tazar, who's wise... He's like Moses, adjudicating between things, right? Tazar, who's wise, looks at John and Matt and, and, and looks at John. John, do you do well to be angry at Matt for he lied to you? And then John's like, yes, he's a liar. That's all he is. And then Tazar says to John wisely, have you ever lied, John? Well, of course. Well, what makes you different? Well, I'm different from Matt. Like, that's complicated. You know, I was under duress. I was under a lot of stress at the time, you know, but Matt's, Matt's just a liar. You notice what you're doing in that particular moment. What are you doing in that particular moment? You're saying, when somebody lies to me, that mistake defines them for the rest of their lives for you. But if I'm lying, I'm going to think the best of myself. You know, when I lied, oh, I was under duress. I needed to protect something. You know, notice what you're doing to yourself. You're protecting your good name, and you're not letting this one mistake define you because you know the complexities of who you are. So what this commandment is saying is about your neighbor, regard them in the best possible light. Read their mistakes charitably. If they're late, assume that they had a good reason. If they lie to you, assume that they had a good reason. It doesn't mean that they, their lie just kind of disappears. No, deal with it, but assume the best of them. Honor their name. Verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. This is the 10th commandment. In other words, here, the, the explicit prohibition is that you shall not envy. And you're thinking to yourself, that doesn't sound very bad, like nothing happens when you envy someone. It's a hard thing, right? This is not something you can easily see. But notice, what is envy? Envy is looking at somebody's possessions and saying, I wish I had that. But notice the moment you say, I should have that and not that person, who are you ultimately expressing that dissatisfaction to? It's to God. You're saying to God, I don't trust you, God, because you made a mistake. 
You gave that person that wife and not me. I should have had her. You made a mistake. Saying to God, I work harder than that person. My house should be bigger than that person. You don't see justice clearly here, God. So envy is actually an accusation against God that he doesn't know what he's doing. Sounds serious, doesn't it? So what's the positive of envy? What's the the positive counterpart of this prohibition? Be content. Be so trusting in God that you know that he has your best in mind. That he knows what's best for you. That he's going to take good care of you. It doesn't matter. You You stop comparing yourself, in other words, because you know you have everything you need in God. Right. And so really briefly, notice the unity of all the commandments and notice the, the heart of all the commandments. Right? Look at the unity of all these commandments. Why do people lie, once again? People lie because oftentimes they want to protect something. They want to say, if I'm exposed, I've, I'll, lose, I'll lose my identity. People will discover who I am. But if you have God, in other words, if you're going to keep the first four commandments and you're fully satisfied in God and somebody accuses you of something and you know you did something wrong, You say, I know. God sees me. God sees the truth. I got to confess this. So if you have God, you won't lie. Right? Um, Also, at the same time, honor your parents. This means, friends, that the parents and all the other authorities, not just parents, have to follow the first four commandments to be honorable. Honor your parents means honor your parents in the Lord. Such that children... If your parents are not following the Lord, yes, continue to honor them. Don't slander against them. But notice what is now your command. Try to evangelize to them. Make sure that they know the Lord. And parents, this is your primary responsibility to your children. How you become honorable? Tell your children about the Lord. Continue to raise them up. Make that your first priority. And notice as well about the unity of these commandments. What happens when you commit adultery? When you commit adultery, you're lying about the worth of that person. You're stealing that person from their potential spouse, right? You are coveting this person in your heart because you wanted them even though they're not yours. And you're misconstruing the image of God within them, denying the God that you worship and using them for your own sexual gratification. Every single command breaks every other command and following one command demands that you follow every other command. Notice the unity of it all too then. And then finally, the heart of these commands. Coveting is by some theologians called the summary of every commandment because every single one of these commandments is rooted in the heart. Right? Why do you commit adultery? Because you've coveted this person. Why do you steal? Because you've coveted this object. Why do you dishonor your parents? Because you've coveted your own identity more so than theirs, you see. And this is exactly what Jesus said, isn't it? To the Pharisees who thought when they looked at the commandments that this is exactly who they are, what did Jesus say? You think you've never murdered? Have you ever hated your brother? You've murdered them in your heart because the root of murder is hate. You think you've never committed adultery? Have you ever lusted against somebody? Well, then you've committed adultery in your heart because the root of that act is, again, back lodged inside the heart. So that, friends, I want you to notice something. If you take away anything from this command, 
I mean, from this, this, this sermon, right? These commandments are not so that you could puff yourself up and say, this is me. <laughs> this is my record. I've never murdered. I've never stolen, right? These commandments should make you absolutely terrified, especially in the context of the Israelites. They should be absolutely terrified. Yes, they were redeemed, and God has given them these commandments, and now they're looking at it, and they're like, okay, we've been redeemed, but how in the world can we keep this up? So let's go to my third point here, the three uses of the law. Look at verses 18 to 21. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet, the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Notice what were the effects of the commands to the people of Israel? They were not shouting up and down in joy because they're saying we're more righteous than Egypt. Notice their immediate effect in this epilogue is they were absolutely terrified. They're saying, if this keeps up and God speaks to us, we will die. Because they looked at the commandments and then they saw themselves and they saw that huge gap between what the commandment actually required and where they were, right? So the Reformed, uh, they had always distinguished the commandments in terms of three uses. The first use is the most obvious one. The civil use of the law that says, these commandments are good for you. It's good for society. Don't murder. Don't lie. It's better for society for you to love life, right? That's obvious. But the second use of the command is what the people here are feeling. What's the second use of the command? The second use of the command is to expose you. It's to make you realize that you're not the Savior. It's to make you say, I cannot rely on myself and my obedience to the law. Rather, I need someone else. And look at their impulse. Moses, you speak to God. You be our mediator. You be our priest. Speak to God on our behalf. Go back in, Moses. If God speaks to us directly, we will die. That's exactly the second use of the law. The second use of the law exposes us, points us to our, our mediator, and they were pointing themselves to Moses because they thought, Moses, surely you have kept the commandments. But of course, what was Moses' assurance of pardon, so to speak? Verse 20. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. Moses' assurance of pardon is simply another command. Don't fear. Don't sin. God is giving these things to tell you not to sin. And the people are like, look, I know that. That's not very assuring, Moses. In fact, look at verse 21. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. In other words, Moses' assurance of pardon wasn't very assuring. The people remained afar off. They couldn't get close to God. And God remained in the dark. Because, friends, I hope you guys are seeing, all right, the second use of the commandment isn't pointing us to Moses. The second use of the command is pointing us to one who's much greater than Moses. And this person, when the people said to him, you go for God, you go to God on our behalf, he didn't just give us another command and say, do not sin. But rather he says, what? Take a look at the cross. I will come before God and this wrath that you feared, that you would die if God comes close to you, I will take that on your behalf. In other words, Jesus Christ gives us the greater assurance of pardon. 
that Moses couldn't have given. Jesus Christ went to God, and yes, the people of God knew that we should die if we got close to God, and Jesus Christ says, yes, you should die, but I will die in your place. So that when you come to God, you no longer have to fear God, because when you see me, you can now come close to God, because that death that you should have died, I will take that death in your place. I am your substitute. I'm the truer and greater Moses, so that when you look at the Ten Commandments, you're not looking at the record of your own righteousness, you're looking at Jesus' righteousness. Jesus is the one who honored your parents. He was the one who honored every authority, not just Mary and Joseph, but also Herod and Pilate, never sinned against them, submitted against the legal authorities, and took on the cross unto himself. Jesus is the one who didn't murder, but he lived life by loving life, by giving his own life, so that his people would be saved. Jesus never committed adultery precisely because he loved his church. He was faithful to her. He died in her place. Jesus did not steal, but rather was generous in his own gifts of his grace to his people. Jesus did not bear false witness because he's truth himself. Jesus did not covet. He was satisfied in God. And because of that, he could say, let not my will be done, but your will be done so that Jesus can now come to his people, and when his people are afraid, when you are afraid, oh Christian, you can come to the light of the world no longer in the dark, cling to the greater Moses and say, you have died in our place, because Jesus didn't just fulfill the law, he bore the curse of the law for sinners like you and me. This is your greater assurance of pardon, friends. Do not fear, for God has come in Christ Jesus, so that in him you may not sin. That's the third use of the law. Now that you are in Christ, you can obey the law, not out of fear, but out of grace, because in him you have been saved. Be free now. Stay in bed with Bonnie. (laughs) Don't trust the trash anymore. Look to your new family. Look at this covenant God who has died for you, and follow his commandments. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your grace in saving us from the curse of the law by fulfilling the law for us and showing to us, Lord God, our need for you and then not leaving us in the dark, but rather bringing us into the light. Father, we pray, therefore, that this would encourage us, that this would motivate us to obey you because the third use of the law is that this reveals to us what would please you and we want to please you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us stand up together and sing this song.